0: It's interesting to me that the Word of God oftentimes has several places where portions of Scripture are repeated. I'm thinking, for instance, in Psalm 14, we find David speaking of the fact that there is no one who does good. No, not one. Talking about the depravity of man. And then repeats the exact same words in in Psalm 53, almost verbatim. There are places in the history books, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, where some of the Psalms are given there, as well as in the book of Psalms. There are several Proverbs throughout all of the 31 chapters of Proverbs, where certain Proverbs are repeated verbatim. In the New Testament, we find certain accounts repeated Again, and in some cases, twice. And I wonder if it's ever crossed your mind, it certainly has mine. And I confess to you that I don't really have an answer to the question, why do you bother repeating all of this information if it's already there elsewhere in the Word of God? My only thought is that perhaps the Lord considers those things that are repeated to be of great importance. And that certainly would be the case with regard to the portion of Scripture that we're looking at today. Because we've already, last week, talked about this very story that we're going to be looking at again today. Repetition? No. Not really. It's there for a reason. Because it's important to God, I believe that God is reemphasizing this Portion that we're going to be looking at today. And it's again spoken of a third time in chapter 15 in the book of Acts. Likewise with Paul's conversion. We saw Paul's conversion earlier on in our studies in this book. We'll find Paul repeating the same things about his conversion experience two more times in the book of Acts. These are important things. They are essential for us to understand the depth of meaning that God has put into these words that we'll be reading today. Keep in mind that until the experience that Peter had that we looked at last week in chapter 10, the Gentile peoples were excluded from being able to enter into a worship of the Lord like the Jews had been able to do. The Jews excluded the Gentiles until Christ died and was raised again. And until some ten years after that, Peter finally is confronted with this very Jewish limitation. They were told to go out into all the world. Well, they thought, well, Jews live everywhere, so it must only be referring to Jews. And we'll be glad to eventually go out into all the world. However, for the first couple of years, they stuck right in Jerusalem, and the church was growing daily, and there were many people getting saved. Miracles were being done. They were right at home with what they believed to be a sect of the Jewish faith. But then persecution came when Saul of Tarsus began to come against the people who called themselves followers of Christ. They were known then as a sect of Jewry, called the Way. And in that persecution, they were forced to remove themselves from Jerusalem, and they spread into, at first, other areas within the territory of Judea in southern Israel. And then, some of them even dispersed into Samaria. And remember, Samaria was where the half-breeds lived. They were half-Jew and half-Gentile. But at least they were circumcised and And they went into Samaria, knowing that Jesus himself had gone into Samaria, and they began to proclaim the word of God to them, outside of the Jewish restrictions, which were very, very severe with regard to associating with a Samaritan. Remember, the typical Jew would go around Samaria by crossing over the River Jordan and coming up back into the Galilee region further north. Samaria was in the middle of the sandwich between Judea and the northern tribes of Israel, Galilee. In that middle section, Samaria, no faithful Jew would cross into that territory without considering himself to be defiled. So it was very uncommon for that to take place, and yet they began to do that. Wonderful. God had been waiting for that moment. Jesus had told his disciples, you shall go and preach this word in Jerusalem, which they did, in all Judea, which they had done, into Samaria, which they had begun to do, and then unto the uttermost parts of the world. Well, they hadn't gotten that far yet until Peter entered into the house of a man named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion, a Gentile of Gentiles. He and his household got saved. The Holy Spirit came down upon them just as he had done on the day of Pentecost to all the Jews who were present in Jerusalem on that wonderful day that we call Pentecost Sunday. And so a new Pentecost had been experienced by Gentiles, not by Jews. Changed everything. And that's why I believe this story is repeated two times beyond its first Record, Because it's so important. It is a remarkable change in the understanding of the church at that time as to how God was going to move throughout all the world by them. It wasn't just to be to the Jews. It was to be to all people, everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike. That did not fit their theology. But they had to change, and they are going to change And that's what this portion of Scripture is mostly all about. It sets the stage. Remember, we saw Paul persecuting the Jews, and then, or Saul rather, persecuting the Jews, and he got saved on his way to Damascus in that effort to continue persecuting the Jews that had already spread that far. In his getting saved, a new thing had begun with him. And now he has taken kind of a back seat in the storyline of Luke as he writes this great book of Acts. And we see that Paul is going to come back on the scene and we're going to be spending a lot of time following Paul in his missionary journeys. But before we get to that point, Luke felt he had to fill in the gaps. And that's what we're doing today. We're filling in some gaps. We're in the middle of that gap, which was the reason that Paul was able to so successfully go into the Gentile world with the blessing of the Jerusalem church. It wouldn't have happened without these events that we're looking at today. So here we are in chapter 11 of the book of Acts, and we're going to be reading from verse 1, and it's likely, I think, that we'll complete the entire chapter, but I do want to spend at least a short while on this repetitive story that we're talking about with regard to Peter's experience Among the Gentiles in Caesarea. Verse 11, uh, verse 1 rather, chapter 11. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. That spreads pretty quickly. He's been in Caesarea, spent some days there, and the people in Jerusalem have now already heard Peter has done something completely out of line. Look at what they're saying. Not only did they hear that the Gentiles had received the word of God, but it says in verse 2, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. You see the, the venom that comes from that statement. They were angry. They were contentious. They saw Peter as having erred. It greatly in having done this terrible deed of entering into a Gentile's house and actually eating bread with him. You know, the, the Jewish mind in that day, and it may even still be today. I'm not sure, but back in that day, especially, it was very, very important when you're eating bread with another person that you have a like-mindedness and. In sharing a meal, you are basically coming into a communion with that other person in that like-mindedness kind of way. And in that event of eating with another, you are now one with them in mind, in attitude, in spirit. A Jew would never, ever eat with a Gentile because of that. And they're, ac- they're actually accusing Peter of doing some heinous thing by going into a Gentile's house and communing with him, eating bread, becoming one with that Gentile. How un-Jewish can you be? Peter has a reason. And he gives that reason for us. And that's what we're going to be looking at As we continue reading this particular portion of Scripture, we see Peter saying this, or verse 4 rather. Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. I was a good Jew. I was praying to my God. And in a trance, I saw a vision. Oh, that's acceptable to any faithful Jew as well. A vision of God. Wow, that's awesome, Peter. What did you see? An object descending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. And when I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. If you were here last week, this is, of course, a repetition of what we studied last time together. Peter was in Joppa. He was on the rooftop around lunchtime. Luke gives us some details in chapter 10 that are not given here, and details are given by Peter here that are not given in chapter 10. But the basic story is exactly the same. He's telling them, this is what I saw. I had a vision. I was just... Praying. He doesn't say here that he was hungry like Luke says, but he was, and he did see this vision, just as he describes here. And a voice did speak, just as he here describes. And it says, Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And at that moment, that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me, to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Now take note of the fact that Peter is saying, these six guys, standing here obviously, these six guys were with me. They're my witnesses to what I am saying. I'm not trying to make this up. They heard it. They knew it. They were there. You can trust my witness, because with this very fact, with two or three witnesses, A matter shall be known. And so he's being very Jewish in his approach, even under the law. Peter's careful to say, these men were with me. And we entered into the man's house. And by the way, we're not told that he ate with Cornelius. They just made that assumption that he ate with Cornelius. He probably did. He probably had a ham sandwich for the very first time in his life. He might have had all kinds of things that were delicacies to the Gentiles, that Peter never had been wanting to ever touch. There were very strict rules and regulations regarding what they could eat. That's still today today, the very, very same with Jewish customs in Israel. You might be able to go into McDonald's, but you won't be able to buy a cheeseburger because they are very strict in regard to the statement that Moses had made as a commandment in the law that told them you shall not... Uh, uh, boil the mother's. You're not, you shall not boil the meat in the mother's milk. So cheese is made from milk. Hamburgers made from beef. You can't put the two together in a sandwich because that would defile the Jewish mind. It was the same back then. They didn't have McDonald's, obviously, but they had those restrictions. Peter said, I did this because. I was told to do this. And yes, I went into the man's house. He says in verse 13, And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house. This is the Roman centurion he's talking about here. Who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you the words by which you and all your household will be saved. Again, this is relatively new information that Peter's giving that Luke didn't give us in the previous chapter. The angel had said that Cornelius was told that by the hearing of this man's words, you will be saved. That's powerful, too. By the hearing of the word, men and women everywhere have that same opportunity to not only hear, but accept what they hear and receive by faith that which they've been told. It's called salvation. It's called setting this one who has been a sinner free from his or her sins. It's called redemption. It's called the grace of God. You shall be saved. And verse 15 says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Remember, Luke records for us in chapter 10, the Holy Spirit came down upon them, the Gentiles, just as he had come upon the Jews in Jerusalem many years before that, and they began to speak in tongues. That was an outside evidence of what had taken place. God wanted to make sure that those Jews that were present knew that this was from God. So he says in verse 17, If therefore God gave them the same gift as He gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? That's a powerful question for all of us to consider. Who am I that I should resist my God? Not only in such things as this, but in anything. If God has chosen to send any of us, to do anything through any of us. Are we going to stand back and say, no, not so, Lord? (laughs) Well, Peter sort of did that, you know. And and he's recorded that for us here. That that was one of Peter's responses to the fact that he should eat unclean things. Not so, Lord. Peter was resisting God in that statement. However... It was for a fleeting moment. He still is his Lord. And he was obedient, although reluctantly at first. He didn't understand what was going on. He wasn't sure how it all played out. But he knew this. God had spoken, and he was going to follow through with what God had commanded him to do. So how was he, as he asked this question again, who was I that I could withstand God? He could not withstand God. The command, the desire that God had placed upon his heart to go forward with this plan. Verse 18 says, When they heard these things, they became silent. Those who were resisting him, who contended with him, now have nothing they can say. Peter gave a good word, an explanation of what had taken place. And it was received by them, apparently. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a good thing for them to have done that which they apparently did do in this particular case. They originally contended with him, but when he explained it to them, they came to a place where they accepted it. They might not have understood it. They might not have thought it was all that great an idea, but God was in it, and it was obvious to them at this point that it was indeed from the Lord. And so they were having to agree with Peter that this is okay. Neither can they resist Neither can they withstand. So when they heard these things again in the beginning of chapter verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Case closed. God has done it. We have nothing else we can say. Let's move on from here. Everything's going to be all right. Now the Gentiles can get saved. But there's still a faction in those Christians. They weren't called Christians yet. But those believers in Jesus Christ who were Jews, who were raised all their lives in Jewry, who wanted to continue to follow the customs of the Jew and thought that it was necessary for all believers to do the same. That involves Circumcision. That's why these of the circumcision, it says, were so animated towards what Peter had been doing with the Gentiles. Those Gentiles would not have been circumcised. At least the Samaritans had been customarily following the habit that was, or the custom rather, of circumcision. But the Gentiles definitely were not. You could almost say they were out for blood. They wanted to have those Gentiles follow the customs of Jews. And it becomes an issue not only in this early stage of the salvation of the Gentiles, but much later on we're going to see it continue to be a problem even with the Apostle Paul as he reaches out to the Gentile nations. Much more of that will come later. Verse 19 says, By the way, that's the end of Peter for now. He's going to be in chapter 12, and after that, he's going to be very, very scarcely seen throughout the remainder of the book. But in chapter 11, where we are now, it changes its focus. Luke is writing that interlude to develop what he's going to be sharing with us next as we move forward. Now in verse 19, he changes to what's going on in another place that we haven't yet seen. But it's a very important and very essential thing that had to have happened. And Luke records it for us in this way. In verse 19 it says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. So here again, They've gone beyond Damascus, another hundred miles, as far away as Antioch. Now, Antioch is in what today is known as Syria. It was, at that time, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. There was Rome, there was Alexandria in Egypt, and there was Antioch in Syria. They were the three great municipalities, metropolitan Areas that were very highly populated and very important in the Roman world. There are other cities, towns named Antioch. One of them is mentioned in the Word of God, and Antioch of Pisidia. It's a much smaller community in a different area of the world. But this one is so very, very important for all of the church and especially in that day. This is where things really, really begin to unfold. But, take note again, that in verse 19 it says, they only spoke these things that they knew to Jews. There were many Jews in Antioch, Syria, Many synagogues, where they would go into the synagogues and they would proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And in their proclamation of that, Many Jews were getting saved. A wonderful thing was happening. It says in verse 20, but some of them were men from Cyrus and Cyrene. Now Cyrus, or Cyprus rather, and Cyrene, Cyprus is an island off the Mediterranean shore. You can see on a good day from the shores of Israel that island known as Cyprus. But Cyrene is a city in North Africa. So they were coming from different locations. They were Jews, but they were traveling just like the Jews who were coming from Jerusalem, probably to escape persecution, and they ended up in Antioch along with many of the other Jews. But these particular ones, from Cyprus and Cyrene, it says, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Now there's a bit of a difficulty with the word Hellenist. In some of your translations it might say Grecians. In other translations, it might just simply say Greeks. And Luke's usage of the word Hellenist usually implied Jews who did not live in Israel. They were living in other territories, and they were known as Hellenistic Jews or Hellenists. Now, that's what Luke has given for an explanation of who he's referring to when he refers to the Hellenists. But in this case, it looks as though, and there are some manuscripts that have a slightly different variation of the word that is translated Hellenist, so that it may very well be, and I'm pretty certain because of the context, that Luke was not referring to Jews, he was referring to Greeks, the Gentile population in that region. There was a huge Greek culture in that city. Even though it was a Roman Empire, there was a Greek culture in that city as well as an Asian culture. But the Greek culture and the Jewish cultures were all there together. And now we've got these men coming from an outside location far away from Jerusalem, but they're still believers in Jesus Christ. They come to Antioch and they start to proclaim not to just Jews, but to others. And there is a wonderful response in all of this. It tells us in 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So this is after Peter had introduced the Gentile world through Cornelius to the gospel message. Things are beginning to now turn in a very different direction. This is a great new chapter in the history of the church, and it's beginning here in this grand city of Antioch. Oh, by the way, Antioch, because it was a very large population center, it also had a lot of, well, carnality associated with it, if you will. One of the Roman writers said that the sewage from the river Orontes, which passed through Antioch, is now flowing into the... Tiber, which is a river going through Rome. And the implication is the garbage that comes from Antioch is now affecting the Roman citizens as well. They were a very very Las Vegas type of place, apparently. They had many temples to the goddesses like Daphne and Aphrodite. It was a very, very popular place. Probably could be well-named Sin City. But the Word of God had come there. And I submit to you that where it's the darkest, the light shines more brightly. That's what was happening in Antioch. It was a very dark place spiritually, but the light has now shined brightly in that city. And there are many people who are now coming to the Lord. It is. It is a marvelous thing to see when God moves in such a way as to bring a multitude of people to Himself through the teaching of His Word. And that's what now is taking place, not only to the Jews, but to everyone. It says in verse 22, Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Oh, now Jerusalem's going to have to get involved again. That's where the apostles still are, by the way. And that's where really the, the central ministry of the church began and continues to be an influence throughout all of that which now has become the church of Christ, the church of God. News of these things that are happening in Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, it's come to their attention. And so they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Now remember, when they heard about the Samaritans getting saved, they sent Philip, not an apostle. Neither one of these men that they sent out were apostles, but they were faithful men filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were used of God. By the way, Barnabas is one of the most important characters in the Word of God from a New Testament perspective. Remember, he was one of the few people who were spoken of by Luke when he talked about the way that they all sold their belongings and brought everything that they had sold to the hands or feet of the apostles in Jerusalem. It was a communal existence, and they gave much of the resources that they originally had while they were experiencing the growth that they were experiencing in Jerusalem Barnabas was mentioned by name in that process as one of those who sold the property and gave everything that he had received from that sale and laid it at the apostles' feet. His name, Barnabas, Barnabas, son of exhortation, encouragement, he plays the part well. It, the name fits him very, very well indeed. And he's now being reintroduced in this portion because he's being sent by the apostles to Antioch to find out what's really happening. Verse 23 says, And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Here's a man of encouragement, encouraging them to continue in their newfound faith. When he got there, Take note of the fact that it says he had seen the grace of God. He was able to observe that something has been happening there and it has to be God's grace that has been the source of all of these things that have been taking place. He had seen the grace of God. I like that. I want the grace of God to be seen by others through this ministry, through all of you going out into your neighborhoods, into your places where you work, whatever your encounters may be, to express by shining the light of Christ how excited it is, exciting it is, to be a part of the fellowship, to be a part of the amazing things that God is doing in His church. We're living in the last days, and if we don't do those kinds of things, then what we are simply doing is taking that little basket and covering that light so that it cannot shine. People of God, don't let that happen. We need to shine the light brightly because it is very dark out there in the world and it's getting darker by the moment. But we have light to shine in that darkness. And though the world loves the darkness rather than the light, when that light begins to shine, there are at least some who will say, I want that. I don't have what you have, but I want that. You won't have to say much, anything at all, perhaps. Just be what God intended you to be. Not everyone is an evangelist. Not everyone is a spokesperson. But every one of us is a Child of God. And we have the same power, the Holy Spirit, in each of us. Light needs to shine. and It was shining there. And he saw that. It was an amazing thing. He saw the grace of God at work. And it was an exciting time for all of them. That's the way it should be in the church today. He encouraged them. That's what his name is. Son of encouragement. He exhorted them to stick with following after the commandments that they knew to be from God, to serve God, to continue to be willing to do God's will. That's what he was teaching them. Verse 24 says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That should be the result. Then Barnabas departed from Tarsus, or for Tarsus rather, to seek Saul. Now Luke is getting back to Saul of Tarsus. We all remember him. He was the one that persecuted the church, but got saved, miraculously saved, on his way to Damascus, encountered the Lord in a miraculous event that changed his life totally. He went 180 degrees in the opposite direction, which is good. Now, if you remember, Paul, at that time, when he first got saved in Damascus, he was then sent by Barnabas and brought by Barnabas to Jerusalem. And Barnabas had introduced Paul to the apostles. And they were saying, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure about this guy. Well, he was there, according to himself in Galatians, writing about this for 15 days. And then he went on from there down into Arabia. Now, we're not told much about that, except for the fact that he was apparently there for three years. And then after that, he went through Caesarea all the way up into his hometown of Tarsus. And he was now there for about another eight or so years, seven or eight years. And now, Barnabas is going there to Tarsus to get Saul. Why? Because Barnabas knew that Saul had been called to proclaim the gospel message to the Gentiles. And the things that were happening in Antioch, where the church was growing so rapidly, Barnabas knew this is something that Saul needs to be a part of. So he goes from Antioch all the way to Tarsus and comes back with Saul. It says in verse twenty six, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. We use the word Christian almost too loosely, I think. You know, there are a lot of people who say, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. Oh, I go to church a couple of times a year. I do good things. My grandfather was a pastor. My parents sent me to Sunday school. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Hmm. Do you know that in the book of James, James says, you believe in God? You do well. The angels, or rather the demons, believe in God and they tremble. What James is saying is, hey, prove it. And he goes on to talk about faith. He talks about the fact that Without faith, works is dead. So you do good things for the people of God. You give money to the church. You are generous with your neighbors. Those are all good things. They're good works. But it's based on the fact that you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you're doing these things. James makes a distinction. He said, Show me your faith without works and I'll show you my faith by my works. James is saying, look, faith has to be acted out. It has to be shown. James is not saying you're saved by faith. Never would he have said that. But he's saying your faith should show others that you are indeed saved. These men taught the same thing. Paul, now, instead of Saul, his name will be changed. He becomes the great apostle to the Gentiles. And that moment, a conversion that had happened so many years earlier, up till this time, that period of time was a training for Paul to become that one that God had intended for him to become. And now he's placed into the midst of a great work of the Holy Spirit in the Gentile lives who are impacted by the gospel message that's being propagated here in this city of Antioch. And now there are some who are observing. They're looking and they're seeing what's going on. And we're not told whether this is from an attitude of disdaining or an attitude of praise for what's going on. But somewhere, somebody began to call them Christians. Now, the word Christians is a combination of the word Christos, which is Christ, also Messiah. And the ending is a Latin ending. Eon is a Latin ending, which means a follower or a part of that which is spoken of. So the word Christian means Christ follower. Christ follower. Whether they intended it as an insult or a commendation, that is what we are to be. And so they accepted that, whether it was derogatory or not, as being perfect. They used to be called Members of the sect known as the Way under Jewry, well that didn't fit anymore because it wasn't just a Jewish religion any longer. It was a religion of the world. Gentiles and Jew alike. So the Way really didn't actually fit as well as it originally had. They were also known as saints. And that's good. We still call ourselves saints today. By the way, do you know that? Do you know yourself to be a saint? Well, if you've been raised in the Catholic church, you wouldn't think that that would be very likely, because it's the Catholic church that determines who saints are and who are not saints, and you can't really circumvent that which the Pope has said, can you? Well, I suggest to you, the Bible does. The Bible calls us saints. The word saints is from the Greek word hagios, and it just means holy one, and we're Told in the Word of God, that we all of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior are holy ones. but That holiness doesn't come from within any of us. We're not holy in and of our own selves. You understand that. We're only holy because of the holiness that's been imputed to us by Christ dying on the cross and being raised from the dead and our accepting that which He accomplished on the cross We have been given that which we now can call the righteousness of God in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us who believe. We have been redeemed. We have been regenerated. We have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. That's the gospel In our hearts, that we want to proclaim to all who would hear, all who would observe, this light that is shining has to shine based upon what Christ has done for us, and we have accepted it with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. We're serving Him, and we're honest in our approach to what God has done. Cannot hide that light. They weren't. And now Paul is finding himself in the midst of that which he had been called to do. This is the beginning of his ministry. Here in Antioch, he spends an entire year with Barnabas, teaching the Word of God. There are only a couple of other places where Paul spent that much time in one location. In Corinth, he was there for about 18 months. In Ephesus, he was there for around a two-year period of time. He traveled the world, the then-known world, on three separate missionary journeys that are recorded in the book of Acts and most likely another one that ended in Rome when he was finally beheaded. What a wonderful teaching experience that must have been. Keep in mind that in Arabia, while he was in Tarsus, his teacher was Jesus. Not the apostles. He got almost everything that he taught subsequent to his conversion. From the Word of God and from the training that he received from Jesus in isolation. He was very well prepared indeed for the ministry that God had for him to do. And it now has shown to be such a profitable thing for the church. He and Barnabas set the groundwork, ground was laid for the spreading of the gospel throughout the entire Roman Empire. But before they do that, before they enter onto their what we know of as their first missionary journey, they've spent this first year training the disciples in Antioch both Jew and Gentile. And now it comes to the point where they need to move on to something more. They spent that whole year with the people and many people were saved and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now it tells us in verse 27, and these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now again, this is all preparation for the Apostle Paul to move forward in his ministry. These things are occurring, and Luke is writing them in a specific order, in a specific way, to show that the Lord is in this. And he's taking various individuals from various locations to do various things, to bring it all together, to completely fulfill his perfect plan for the church. And so, Paul uses these men that come to Antioch in a very important way. It says, they came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and in verse 28 it says, then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Luke is a very accurate historian, and he gives details. And through the details that he's giving here, we can tell that this event must have taken place somewhere around 43 or 44 A.D., because of the information he gives regarding Claudius and the famine that had happened in his days. But this man, Agabus, interesting character. We'll see him again much later in Acts 21. But he comes to Antioch and he is a prophet. In the church, there were prophets. In the church, there are gifts of the Spirit. There are ministries of the Spirit. There are offices in the church that are recognized. They weren't fully developed yet in this particular portion of Scripture, but they will be as we move forward and we'll see those things, especially in Paul's writings of the letters that he wrote, regarding the various acts of the Spirit in the church. And it's given very, very clearly that the Spirit does impute to all of his church various gifts and abilities and responsibilities. This particular office of prophet is one of those offices that are spoken of. There are the apostles, there are evangelists, there are prophets, there are pastor-teachers. All of them are part of what God has intended for the church. To bless the church, to edify the church, for teaching sound doctrine, for establishing the church, for doing the ministry that God calls the church to do. They're important ministries. Do we have prophets today? One of the things that we recognize when we see the activities or the statements of prophets in the Old Testament and in the New is that they can either be speaking of some future event, prophesying that something is going to happen, as will be the case here, or they can be forth-telling or telling forth the Word of God, explaining the mysteries of God that were previously unknown, as Paul did. In the book of Ephesians, Paul told the Ephesians that he explained to them the very mysteries of God that had been unknown until they were revealed to the Gentile world. He was a prophet in that case. He was foretelling the truth of God's Word. There are prophets today in that sense, I believe. Men and women who have been chosen by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit to proclaim the truth of God in a way that is so very needful for the church. I see it especially so in areas of the world where the gospel has not yet been fully known. Places like Iran, China, North Korea, Iraq, Sudan. In places where the word of God is being restricted by enemies of God. And they don't want the word to be propagated by the words that are spoken by true men and women of God. And in those places, I believe that the Lord is indeed moving prophetically. He's demonstrating His willingness to save all who would come to Him by faith through signs that are visions and dreams in those places. Is it happening out here in this end of the world, this corner of the world in which we live? Oh, well, I guess it probably won't because I'm not really sure that any of us care. Or do we? I think he does do those things when his people want him to do those things. He simply says, God, your father, loves to give good gifts unto his children. Why would he withhold any good thing from us? The only reason that he would is because we would never ask. So friends, when Jesus says ask and you will receive don't you think it's a good idea for us to do so? Let's do it. And let's do it with a heartfelt conviction that what Jesus has told us, He he will complete in us. He will do that which He has promised because He is God and He loves to give good gifts unto His children. He wants to give exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think. Are we willing to simply just trust Him in this? Are we willing to say, Lord, I'm lacking in my faith. Will You help me increase my faith to believe what You have said? to be true for me as well as it is for anybody else in the world today. Let us be faithful to what God has spoken in His Word, my friends. Then we will be known as Christians by all with whom we come into contact. I want that to be the case for me, for you, for all of us. So that they can say they were called Christians in Searsport. They were called Christians in Swanville, in Belfast, in Stockton Springs, in Prospect, in Northport, in Searsmont, Bayside, Lincolnville. You know, we are in a very large area, but very remote area, And it is necessary for all of us to recognize that not all of us live in Searsport. We span a huge region. And we may not be a large population, but there's a lot of people out there that don't know the Word of God to be the very Word of God. And we need to be His voice in this. And when we do represent Him and shine the light that He wants us to shine, they will know that we have been with Christ and perhaps they'll recognize the fact that we are Christians and they are not. And won't that be wonderful to have a wonderful move of the Holy Spirit in our little faithful group of people here that reaches out into all of those communities and draws many people to faith in Christ Jesus in these last days. That's what this is all about. That's, what we, that's why we're here. Let us be faithful to it. Well, lastly... Finishing the chapter, verse 27 says, In those days, the prophet came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus, uh, Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. These are Gentile believers. And they're reaching out to the Jews in Jerusalem by helping them in a material way. This is one of two occasions where the Jews in Judea are going to be helped by Gentile believers. It's a wonderful example of God moving in the heart of those who serve Him by being willing to give to others what they have received. Better to give than to receive, we're told. And that's always been the case. That's what they're doing here. And it says in verse 30, this they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of none other than Barnabas and Saul. Saul will spend some time with Peter, with James, the Lord's half-brother. He will have an opportunity to share what has been going on in the Gentile world since he was in Tarsus and now in Antioch and how God had been moving among the Gentiles. There's going to be some problems that need to be addressed. And they will be addressed. And if we get there before the Lord comes for His church, then we will see how that all plays out in chapter 15. If you want to read ahead, you can find that out for yourself. But... Hang in there. There's so much that happens between chapter 12 and the end of the book, and we are in for, I believe, a wonderful time of study in God's Word that will end up changing our lives for the good. If you are willing to listen to the Word of God and apply it, appropriate what God has done for you and wants to do through you and through me, then we are going to change this world and turn it upside down. God is able. God is willing. I pray that we all are as well.